Welcome this morning. My name is Dave Farley. I'm one of the pastors here at GCF. At GCF, we believe the best way to feed the flock is through consecutive exposition of the Scriptures, and we're working through the Gospel of John very slowly, and this morning we're on John 7, 37 to 39. Let's pray once again and ask for God's blessing on this portion of His Word. Father, thank You for giving us so many reasons this morning to sing. Father, thank You for Jesus, who suffered and died in our place. I pray that he would be honored and magnified in this sermon. Jesus, thank you for pouring out the Spirit. We pray now that you would pour out your Spirit once again on the preaching of your Word. We pray that you would manifest your presence as the Word is preached and magnify the risen Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. It's the last day of the Feast of Booths. And Jesus is in the temple of Jerusalem, standing shoulder to shoulder with literally thousands of pilgrims from all over the empire uh, in Jerusalem, in the temple, to celebrate the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Yet we've already learned in John 7 that some of the people in this vast throng do not like Jesus. In fact, they hate Jesus. There's people in the crowd that want to murder Jesus. We've already learned that the authorities have called the temple guards to find Jesus in this crowd and arrest him. At this point, Jesus knows that there's people who are after him, who want to arrest him and put him to death. Despite this grave danger, he decides to show up on the last day of the feast and crash the party. Now, why in the world was he willing to risk everything, including his life, to preach in the temple courts of Jerusalem? Because he knew how exceedingly important his message was. He knew that adherence to this particular message was a matter of life and death. So, in verse 37, he lifted up his voice and he cried out, this vast throng. And at this moment, everyone in the temple probably stopped and stared at the guy who was crying out. This was not a public service announcement. This was not a lecture. This was an impassioned plea for everyone present to stop and listen to this life-changing message. What in the world was so, risk, so worth risking life and health and everything else to proclaim? What was Christ's message? Why was he willing to risk public humiliation? His message was simply this. He boldly proclaimed that he was the one and only source of living water, which means there's no other source of living water. He's the only source of living water. What in the world does that mean? To help us understand his short little message, we're going to look at it under three headings. Living water needed, living water supplied, and living water described. First, living water needed. Who needs living water? The answer is, everyone who thirsts. Look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, 
Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This raises the question, thirst for what? We know that he's not talking about real water, that is H2O, because we learn later that this thirst is not quenched with liquid. He's talking about the thirst of the soul that all of us has. He's saying, if your soul is thirsty, come to me and drink. Which raises another question, why are our souls so often so thirsty? Because we often drink from wells that never ever satisfy. We drink from the well of financial success, sexual pleasure, power, friendships, health, athletic and professional achievements, intellectual pursuits, popularity, homes, cars, lake houses, vacations, political parties. Now some of these things are gifts from God that we're meant to enjoy for his glory. But we quickly turn God's good gifts into idols that will never, ever, ever slake the thirst of our soul. We look to these things for ultimate meaning, identity, and lasting happiness, but they were never, ever, ever meant to quench our soul's thirst. On July 30th, 1945, a U.S. Navy carrier called the USS Indianapolis was heading home across the Pacific Ocean after a crucial mission to end World War II. Unfortunately, a Japanese torpedo kept the ship from reaching its final destination. Within the first 12 minutes of being struck, 300 sailors perished. More than 900 men ended up in the salt water without shelter from the sun, protection from the sharks, and without fresh water to drink. Within a couple of days, at open sea, only 316 sailors were left. Captain Lewis Haynes, the chief medical officer, survived. And he described what happened across these couple of days. He warned the men passionately not to drink the salt water. But when the hot sun beat down on them, they were so thirsty, they went crazy, and they began to hallucinate. And then they began to drink the salt water. And Captain Haynes was so desperate to get them to stop that he would grab anything, a, a, a log or a pole, and begin to beat these guys to get them to stop drinking the salt water. But they were so thirsty, so dehydrated, that they drank the salt water. And eventually, they died of dehydration. The salt water did not satisfy them. It just left them thirstier and thirstier and thirstier and eventually led to death. The idols of money, sex, and power will never, ever, ever satisfy. They just leave us thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. What is an idol? Idols are the things that we center our lives on. Idols are the things that define us. Idols are the things that we look to for comfort and meaning. But eventually, these idols destroy us. And Tim Keller describes how this often happens. He says this, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or your partner, you'll be emotionally dependent, jealous, 
and controlling. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or you have no or they have no self of their own. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you'll become a driven workaholic. And if your career goes poorly, you'll develop deep depression. And if it goes well, you'll become proud. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry and jealousy about your money. Idols don't just rob us of joy, and they're unable to quench our thirst. Far more importantly, idols dishonor God. Jeremiah 2.13 says this, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils. We've abandoned God, and we worship idols. Now, all of us, to some extent this morning, are idolaters. There's all things that we look to to satisfy us besides Jesus. And when that happens, you and I must repent which looks like this, God, please forgive me for worshiping at the altar of money, success, power, for pastors, church size, church budget. Even good things can become idols. God, forgive me, and please help me to stop doing this, and please help me to drink from the fountain of living water. But where do we find this living water that slakes or quenches our thirst? That brings us to the second point. So first, living water is needed. Second, living water is supplied. Well, who supplies the living water? The answer is Jesus. Look with me at John 7, 37, the first part, just the first couple of words. On the last day of the feast, the great day. It's the last day of the Feast of Booths. Depending on who is counting, it's either day seven or day eight of this glorious feast. The entire feast was designed to commemorate God's faithfulness to Israel 1,500 years earlier when Israel traveled around the desert for 40 years. And during that time, they lived in booths or tabernacles. They were constantly on the move. They were nomads. And the key word is desert. They were constantly in need of water. They were constantly thirsty, needing to have their thirst quenched. So every morning of the festival, the priest would walk to the pool of Siloam. And then he would take a golden pitcher with him. He would fill up that pitcher with water, and then he and everyone there would walk back to the temple, singing the whole time the words of Isaiah 12, 3, which says, with joy we draw water at the wells of salvation. So they would go to the pool, get water, walk back to the temple, singing the whole time. Then when the priest arrived in the temple, he would walk around the altar with the, with the pitcher in his hand seven times. Then he would pour the water um, on the altar in the temple. This happened every day for seven days. Why did they do this? It was a reminder that in the wilderness wanderings, God provided them with much needed water. Without water, you and I die. And of course, in the wilderness wanderings, as many of you know, 
At one particular moment in their, Israel's history, they were all about to die of dehydration. And God supernaturally provides water from a rock. Moses takes his staff and he strikes the rock and water comes flowing out. And the ceremony was meant to remind Israel of God's gracious provision of water. Let me go back to verse 37 again. With that in mind, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus watched this ceremony every day for seven days. And as he watched, something was building up inside of him. He had to say something. He had to do something because he knew that he was the ultimate fulfillment of that ceremony. He's the one who provides water for our souls. He was the rock in the wilderness for Israel. He is the rock for us. And when he is struck on the cross, he provides living water for all those who believe. Jesus Christ is the one. He's the only one who can slake our thirst. And he had to say something because he knew the whole thing was meant to point to him. He's the only source of living water, and there is no other source. He's it. Only Jesus can save our souls from spiritual dehydration. Have you ever been really thirsty? Raise your hand. Really thirsty. It was late August of 1994, and it was so hot that I could see the heat waves literally rolling across the grass at Hartfield up on the South Hill. Football practice, we had practice twice a day for a couple weeks in a row, and temperatures reached 100 degrees routinely. We did this drill called Tiger Trainers. It was kind of like football hazing. So this drill, there were four groups of guys, one in each corner of the football field, and while one group was running around the field, it was, time, it was like a minute and a half, it was timed, it was very fast, the other group rested in the corner by doing push-ups, sit-ups, jumping jacks, and up-downs. That was the rest part of the drill. And if you didn't make the time, you had to go again. So we just kept running and running and running, 100 degrees, and all the guys were dripping with sweat, red faces, trying to catch their breath, totally exhausted, but we kept going and going and going and getting thirstier and thirstier and thirstier. All I could think about in that moment was some cool, refreshing water. I got so dehydrated that I threw up all over my face mask. Not my finest athletic moment. But there I was, vomit everywhere, because I was so dehydrated. It was actually pretty unsafe. And I went home, and I drank way too much water and got even sicker because I overhydrated. Here's the point. My body was desperate for water. Without water, we're in really bad shape. Our souls are far more desperate for living water. Without living water, you and I are in deep, deep trouble. 
And sometimes we don't even know how thirsty we are. No one else and nothing else can quench our soul's thirst but Jesus. He's the only source of living water. So who supplies this living water? Jesus. Next question, how do we drink the living water? What do we have to do to access this water? All we have to do is believe. Verse 38, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, whoever works really hard, reads their Bible, prays, gives away their money, leads a small group, recycles and drives an electric car, that person will receive living water. That's not what he says. He simply says, whoever believes in me, living water is free of charge. All we have to do is believe, and it's yours. It can't be earned. It's freely given. This is very clear in the Old Testament, Isaiah 55.1. Isaiah writes, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It costs you nothing. It costs Christ everything. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. It's free. My friends, this is the scandal of Christianity, and I hope you never, ever, ever grow tired of hearing this. Christ and all of his benefits are yours free of charge. Can I get one amen? Okay. In the Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. Jill is terrified by the sight of a lion. So she runs into the forest to hide. But she runs so fast and so hard that she gets really thirsty. But then she hears the sound of a gurgling brook in the distance. As she approaches the refreshing water, she sees the same lion standing there between her and the water. And she's terrified. Are you thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come and drink, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and empires, cities and realms, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. 
I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, she said. There is no other stream, said the lion. When she finally drank, it was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. When you and I come to the living waters, we come through the lion of the tribe of Judah. And if he does not terrify you, you don't know who you're dealing with. He is the God who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing, and the Bible says that he is holy, 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 three times, and he's a consuming fire. This living water costs you nothing. It's free of charge. And if you really believe the gospel, You'll do whatever the lion tells you to do. And you'll do it joyfully and cheerfully because he's the lion of the tribe of Judah and he's the only one who offers the living water. There is no other fountain, no other source. It only comes through Jesus which means that Muhammad and the Buddha and Joseph Smith cannot and will not quench your soul's thirst. It only comes through Jesus. The living water is free of charge, but it will cost you everything. But what is it exactly, this living water? This brings us to the last point. Living water needed, living water supplied, and finally living water described. What exactly is this stuff called living water? Verse 38 and 39 of John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit. Interesting. Who or what is the living water? The Holy Spirit. Again, verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is saying, that he is the one who supplies the living water, but the living water is not him. The living water is the Spirit. And Jesus could not give the Spirit to us because you and I are guilty, broken, dirty vessels. So Christ had to come, suffer, die in our place, rise from the grave, go to the Father's right hand, and from there, once we were cleansed and purified, he poured out the Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus is the one who earned for us the right to be indwelt by the Spirit. He's the one who dispenses the living water, and the living water is the Holy Spirit. Now notice that Jesus describes this living water um, as plural. Verse 38, 
Out of his heart will flow rivers, plural, not singular, rivers of living water. And that's because the Spirit has many, many ministries to us as saints. The living water is the Spirit, and he does many, many things in us and through us. Like what? There's the river of God's presence. What is Christianity ultimately? Is it a code of conduct, a philosophy of life, a peaceful and easy feeling? Is it right doctrine? Is it a positive vision for society, a pattern of ethical behavior? Of course, in one sense, it's all these things. But most importantly, Christianity is a direct experience or encounter with God's very presence. That's Christianity. When you become Christians, something mind-boggling and astonishing happens. You, individual, and me, who live maybe 80 or 90 years, who are made of dust, when we, when we become Christians, God the Spirit comes and lives inside of us. Are you kidding? God, the creator of all things, dwells inside of us. Wow. There's one person over here who's listening to me. Thank you, over there. The God who is everywhere present, who knows all things actual and possible, who has always existed. How does that work? I don't know. The God who is sovereign over all things, that God, when you become a Christian, comes to live inside of you to manifest God's presence in you. There was a book written in the 17th century by a guy named Henry Skugel. The book is titled, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And he argues in that book, the very essence of being a Christian is having an encounter with the Holy Spirit, understanding and experiencing God's very presence inside of you. And if you have not experienced God's presence inside of you, I wonder, are you a Christian? Because the very essence of being a Christian is God's Spirit coming to dwell in you, manifesting his presence in you. Have you ever sensed his love, experienced his comforting presence, heard that still small voice in your soul? I hope so. But right now, if you have no clue what I'm talking about, again, I wonder, are you a believer? There's the river of presence. In addition, there's the river of fruitfulness. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. This living water helps us produce fruit. The reason God saved you was to make you holy, to glorify his name 
He didn't save you because he was lonely and needed friendship. He saved you because he wants to receive maximum glory through you as you produce fruit. How does this work? It's very simple. It's called spiritual breathing. You and I breathe out our sins, repentance. We say, God, forgive me for this or that or that thing. And then we breathe in the Spirit. Spirit of God, please help me, fill me, empower me to say no to this or that or to grow in humility or to grow in love or to grow in faithfulness or to grow in self-control. If you want to know how to pray for yourself, just pray through this list. I often say to God, God, please help me today to grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit wants to help you be fruitful. Water produces fruit. God's given you everything you need to be fruitful river of presence, the river of fruitfulness. In addition, there's the river of mission. Back to verse 38. The Holy Spirit wants to help us go out on mission. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice the flow is going out from us. The Holy Spirit causes rivers to flow out of our hearts. In other words, the Holy Spirit wants to make us fruitful to bless other people, which raises the question, when you're around your siblings, your parents, your coworkers, are you a blessing to them? <laughs> That's convicting, isn't it? Are your words and actions and attitudes blessing them? I love what happens in John 4. When the Samaritan woman discovers the living water from Christ, the end of John 4, she goes and tells the whole village, I found this guy named Jesus. Could he be the Christ? When the Spirit fills her, she becomes a blessing to those around her and tells them about Jesus. When the Spirit's at work in us, we go out on mission telling others about Jesus no matter what it costs us. There's the river of presence, fruitfulness, mission, and probably most importantly, the river of illumination. Ephesians 1, 16 to 18, Paul's wonderful prayer, he says this, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit, capital S, that's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. One of the most important and vital ministries of the Holy Spirit is helping you and I not just to understand, but experience the truths of Scripture. Paul prays for the Ephesian saints that they would grow in their understanding of the hope they have within them. The longer I'm a Christian, the more I've realized really only one thing matters. Is the Holy Spirit increasingly giving me illumination? Helping me understand and experience, more importantly, the glorious doctrines of the gospel. 
It's one thing for us to understand in our heads that we're forgiven. But have we experienced that in our hearts? It's one thing to understand the hope of heaven in our heads. But have we experienced that in our hearts? It's one thing to understand that the power of sin has been broken in us, Romans 6, but have we experienced that in our hearts? It's one thing to understand that you and I have been adopted by the maker of all things and we are now his children, but have we experienced that in our hearts? Romans 5.5, has the Holy Spirit been shed abroad in our hearts, making us aware of our adoption as sons and daughters? My constant prayer for myself and for you as the church is that the Holy Spirit would increasingly give us illumination. When this happens, marriages are restored, faith turns, or fear turns into faith, cowards become lions, addicts are delivered, and long sin patterns are broken. All because the Holy Spirit brings illumination and helps us experience in our hearts the truths of the gospel. If you want to know how to pray for me and your friends and loved ones, pray this. Spirit of God, help this person understand with the eyes of their hearts what Christ has done for them. When that happens, everything changes. Living water is needed Living water is supplied, and living water is described. It's the ministry of the Spirit. Now, this time of year, many of us receive numerous invitations to things like summer weddings and graduation parties. I'm aware of someone who received 17 invitations to graduation parties this year. I wish that was that popular. Maybe that's an idol in my life. I don't know. My wife and I received an invitation from someone we'd never, ever met or seen in our lives. My wife said to me, here's the card, Dave, so do you recognize this person? No. Do you? No. Is this person a distant relative of ours? We don't think so. Maybe it was someone in here. I'm sorry if it was you. <laughs> They're from the Midwest. And so we ignored that invitation. Now, it's safe to ignore certain invitations. When they come in the mail, you have to prioritize them and figure out what are my obligations? Am I busy that particular time? What other parties do I have to go to? We can ignore certain invitations for certain things and not go to jail and not get in trouble. But there's one invitation that you must not ignore. Jesus invites everyone present this morning to drink from the living waters. He offers it free of charge. And it's the only water that will ever slake the thirst of your soul. Have you drunk from this well? Let's pray together.